Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode three of Out With Susie Ruffle. If you're a new listener, hello. Thanks very much for coming to the party. Episode one and two do exist. They are chats with excellent guests, Dustin Lance Black and Baroness Ruth Hunt. So if you enjoy the show today, maybe go back and have a listen to those. I can't believe there's only been two episodes. I've received so many messages of support from listeners out there, some emails and tweets and Facebook posts and Instagrams. And I've had some great reviews on iTunes, which I really, really appreciate. That really helps the podcast find an audience. So thanks so much for that. As ever, well, at the moment, I'm in my home podcast studio, which is actually just a very large cupboard in my house. Um, with a blanket at the door and some cushions around me to try and make the sound as nice as possible. We're still under lockdown here. I seem to have reverted to a child today because I decided what I fancied was chocolate rice crispy cakes. So that's what I've been making. Uh, they are delicious. So let's crack on with the show. Thank you so, so much to anyone that has sent in a coming out story. It's so great to receive them. I've received quite a few, but please carry on sending them in. If you want me to read out your story on the show, and it can be anonymous, uh, please email hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I was so delighted the amount of you who got in touch because Bryony's story resonated with you last week. And so I'm going to share two of them this week because it, uh, it seems that's a part of the show that people are really loving. So here's the first one. This, this person wanted to remain anonymous, which of course I respect, but I, I really loved reading this story. And I think it's really important to highlight not everyone comes out when they're sort of in their teens or in their early 20s. This person came out a little bit later and uh, I really wanted to share her story. Being a similar age to Ruth Hunt, growing up as a teenager in the 90s where being gay didn't seem to be much of an option meant that her episode last week really resonated with me. I teach English at a secondary school, which is an environment where being an openly gay teacher isn't always easy. I struggled and battled with my sexuality for a long time, first realising I fancied girls as a teenager, but always brushing it off as nothing and hoping I would meet Mr. Wright. Who even says that anymore? After unsuccessfully dating guys for most of my 20s and 30s and occasionally trying to chat to girls online, it wasn't until I started therapy sessions a couple of years ago with the goal of addressing my sexuality that I really got to a place where I could accept it myself. My friends and family have been really supportive, if unsure how to help me, and it often left me feeling like the only one who really had an issue with my sexuality was me. 
After much angst and deliberation and support from my friends, I finally went on a date with a woman called Gemma last summer. I'm so glad I did because as soon as she sat down in Pizza Express of all places, I knew. I just knew I liked her and I would have known if I didn't. With dates with guys, it had always been, hmm, maybe I like him, I'm not sure, do I? As if I didn't truly know my own gut feeling and was trying to battle with it. The first time I held hands with Gemma in the cinema, it was like an electric moment for me. I remember phoning my friend after who was like, yes, that's how it's supposed to be. I'd never felt like that before. And it was such a relief. Me and Gemma dated for a few months and it ended, unfortunately. But then, a few months later, I plucked up the courage to start chatting to another gay colleague in my department at school. She's a bit younger than me and much more confident in her sexuality and has really helped me talk about my feelings and fears, as well as sharing hilarious memes, articles, Instagram posts, songs and films. It's really opened up my eyes to a whole new LGBTQ world that I was always too scared to become part of. But now I'm really glad I am. She's now my girlfriend and we're very much in love. We're having a great time together. I don't know if it was a mixture of the times we are living in now where the LGBTQ community is allowed to have much more of a voice and things becoming less mainstream boring or the therapy that has helped me to become a lot more confident with myself and my sexuality. I'm not sure, but I definitely wouldn't have been writing this 10 or even five years ago. So thanks for the podcast and for giving me this platform to write down my thoughts. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you sending that in. Thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. And I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Also, just quickly, there was definitely a lesbian teacher at my school. I went to a Catholic school in Portsmouth and um, there, were, there were two lesbian teachers who I think had a relationship. That was certainly the rumour. But I mean, that would have been the rumour, wouldn't it? But I think they both left the school because of of homophobia and I often think about those two teachers one was a PE teacher I mean I love a stereotype and the other was a science teacher but I often think about those women and think about how seeing them even in a situation where I don't think they were maybe having the best time or certainly where they had to hide who they were but I think it really helped me sort of understand some of my feelings even though I didn't come out for another sort of five or six years but I think it was a really positive thing for me to see. So to that teacher that's just sent that in, I, I wonder if you know how much of an impact you're having on some of the LGBT teenagers. Even if you're not massively out, I'm sure that people will see things in, in you and I'm sure they'll, they'll really appreciate it and, and the same with your partner. So thank you so, so much for sending that in. Uh, okay, I've got another coming out story because I feel like it's really important that we highlight the bisexual community as well. And uh, this is from Andy, who is bisexual, but he's also doesn't want a label. Here we go. Hello, my name is Andy. I'm 28 and I'm delightfully gay. Or am I? Jump back 10 years and people will be telling me, you're so camp, you're so gay. And I would hate it. I'd hate it so much because I fancied girls. I remember being smitten in my childhood again and again with girls every time. So there was this disconnect between who I felt I was and who other people decided I should be. Life went on, and while I don't remember when something changed, I do remember taking my 20-year-old self to a therapist, let's call her Maureen, and saying, I think I like both men and women. Sadly, Maureen was pretty crap. However, on this occasion, she helped me to change everything in just five words. Does it have to matter? And in that moment, I realized, no, no, it did not. 
light bulb switches on and suddenly everything changed. There was a whole new world I gave myself permission to explore. Looking back, there were signs. Iceman from X-Men fancied him. Carl from Shameless, oh lordy. So I adopted my new title, Bisexual. Over the next five years, I reveled in my newfound identity. I was out, I was proud, but mostly I was frustrated. While my family and friends embraced me and my new bleach blonde hair, bad idea, don't worry Andy, I've also been there, wasn't good for me either. Time and time again, people would say, but which do you prefer? You've got to pick one, you've got to choose. It was like their brains exploded. Both? Both? Why, yes. Yes, I did. There was even dissenters within my newfound community. You're bi. We don't believe in bisexuals, said one lovely gentleman. A bi-atheist? Come on. Could you not at least try being a bi-agnostic? Surely we've got enough prejudice coming from outside the club. No matter. I carried on doing my thing. Then along came 25. By this point, I was exclusively dating men. Not because that was the master plan, just because that's the place I found myself. I've even recently found myself a boyfriend. I say found. He and I have both committed to this. I didn't just pick him out of a bush and adopt him. So those hecklers, they were right. Or perhaps wearing the gay label just seems to fit right now. I don't know. Whatever the case, whoever I am, I am content with being me. Not a label or a box. Yes, those things can make life easier when filling out online banking forms or setting up your Tinder account. But life and people are much more complex. So here's to tomorrow. Because if there's one thing this whole being alive thing has taught me, it's yours to explore. Thank you so much for sending that in, Andy. I'm sure lots of people would have loved to have heard that and lots of people will feel really, really similar. Okay, let's move on to this week's interview. Uh, I say this week, it was recorded last month. And this week, oh, I had such a great chat and I'm so delighted to introduce him to you, the brilliant Mossin Zeddy. I've fallen a little bit in love with him. You might be able to hear that throughout the interview. He's just brilliant. He is a barrister and writer who is publishing a memoir about growing up gay in a religious Muslim family. I uh, I loved the book. I was lucky enough to be sent an early copy of it. It won't be coming out until August, but I will share the link to pre-order. Uh, please do. I, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. I loved it. The book is called A Dutiful Boy, and I just think he has such an interesting story to tell. And I think it's a story that doesn't get shared enough. And so what a joy, what a pleasure it is that I get to, to share it with you this week. So let's go now to that chat with the brilliant Mossin Zeddy. So I am here today with Mossin Zeddy, an Oxford graduate, author, um, on the board at Stonewall, um, ex-legal director of London Pride, criminal barrister, and twice has been ranked by the Financial Times on the outstanding list of future leaders. That's quite impressive. Um, well, if I say yes, do I sound like a knob? No, um, not at all. I uh, it. No, it's, uh, yeah, I guess I don't, uh, you don't look at your CV that often. No, and also I think just to be clear, I I'm, I don't think I gave you that list. No, you of didn't. No, no good, you didn't. Because no, it'd cause be awfully arrogant if I had. But yeah, that's uh, it's what it says at the end of uh, Mossin's uh, emails. Just all of those notes. <laughs> no, I was like, what? <laughs> and, um, yeah, those are all true. <laughs> well, it's interesting because what I always like to do at the top of the chat is sort of say how the world describes you, yeah, and then sort of say how would you describe yourself. I think. 
so first of all, I should apologise because because you're the first person I've had to do anything like this with. But so I'm, this... I'm, this is lucky. I'm sort of I'm, I'm popping your cherry. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you are. What you are. You are. To say. Yeah. Um, how would I describe myself? I guess I would describe myself now as uh, a writer and a criminal barrister. What we should say at the outset is that Mossin is just about to release. I think the week this pod's going to come out, uh, the book will be released, A Dutiful Boy, which I, I mean, the end, I sobbed on a train back from Leeds. <laughs> I've been on tour all over the country and you were my, for a couple of weeks of the tour, you were my uh, my company on the road, which was lovely. But I just, I loved it so much. I think it's such a great book. At what point did you think I want to tell this story? Or um, I guess an easy thing for you to do, Mossin, is... Describe what the book is in your own words and then we'll sort of talk a little bit more about it. The book opens with me as a young boy growing up in East London in Walthamstow. I was raised in a council house uh, and I was raised in a very religiously conservative family. I always hesitate to use the word conservative because you kind of conjures up images of my parents being knobs and they're not, <laughs> they're not at all. Um, they're wonderful, loving people. Oh, you really get that in the book. You really Good. get that in the book. Good. Um, but they're very religiously observant. And mm -hmm. so the story tells the journey of me coming to terms with my own sexuality, first realising that I am gay, mm -hmm. then um, having to fight against that. So fighting the urge to be with men. And, and uh, when I'm a teenager, I kind of decide, actually, I'm just going to ignore this essentially mm -hmm. I'm going to put it in a little box inside myself and... oh and I'm sure loads of listeners can absolutely identify with yeah, that yeah exactly um, and then by some mad luck of the draw I end up going to Oxford and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm the first person from my school that, that goes to Oxford and at the time my parents had said I had to stay in London for university so Oxford was the only university outside of London I was allowed to apply to um, and actually, I think if I hadn't got in, things would have been very different. So anyway, I go to I go to Oxford and then I'm confronted with lots of different things. So it's not just about people feeling quite sexually way more liberal because I'm generally with white middle class mm. people. Um, but also just the idea that I come from a background where most people don't go to university. And, and when I'm at the university, a lot of people don't have student loans. And yeah, it's sort of more upper yeah, upper middle yeah, class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, upper middle class. Um, middle class. And so I guess there's a collision of lots of different uh, parts of me happening at university, and I have a bit of a breakdown. So the story is my journey from, from university through to being a criminal barrister and ultimately taking my parents on a journey with me to the point where they can come to terms with my sexuality. How long ago did you think, I feel like this is a story that I really want to share and that I think people would be really interested to hear? So I now identify as being middle class because, yeah. I mean, it would be ridiculous of me to say otherwise. Oh, me too. Um, I, although I, I haven't been to university, my whole family are very working class. I talk about it a lot on stage. My family are sort of geezers and birds. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're, they're brilliant and they're fabulous and I love them very much. And I, there's a real sort of strange thing, isn't there, in your, in your own adulthood where all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm different from yeah. my family. I don't... And, you know, when I see some of my cousins and I'm sort of... I have a very different sort of lifestyle to them and it would be a lie if I now said that I was working class I think yeah yeah exactly I'd go to d dinner parties which is what I was going to say I'm middle oh, class because basically <laughs> it seems like this thing that middle class people do dinner parties where you just talk about politics and stuff and you know somehow the conversation would come round to obviously usually they were gay um, dinner parties sure the food's and very good. The the lighting would have been great. Yeah, napkins been, are perfectly folded. All of that stuff, exactly as I'd imagine. Go on. I would often be the one of the only, if not the only, non-white person. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, I think the, the LGBT community has this wonderful tradition where it shares its coming out story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, Hence this podcast. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, and I love that. And I think that's a really important way for us to bond when we first meet each other. But I guess there is a slight wrinkle in that, in that when you are a non-white person and you're in a group of people that are sharing this story, people turn to you and they, and they almost expect the drama yeah um, it's like oh how was it for you yeah did you have a really tough time yeah and you know I can't complain about that too much because I've written a book about it because I did have a really <laughs> tough time yeah but when I was in my early 20s I wasn't prepared to have that conversation certainly it, not with people you just met just met party. yeah especially if I was trying to sleep with them or something <laughs> yeah like, like you know I don't want to cry and then try and take you <laughs> yeah, home like, that's... exactly emotionally vulnerable no 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 <laughs> <laughs> um that that I guess started it and I thought oh people keep asking this is a kind of a recurring thing where people keep asking me about this and then people would assume that because I sound the way I do I'd gone to a private school yeah and then when I said no I went to a comprehensive in Walthamstow then that added another layer of interest of how did you get from Walthamstow to, to being where you are and so I guess that's where it started but I didn't think about writing it until about five years ago when uh I wrote it for myself actually I just wrote down the story of coming out to my mum and coming out to my dad which th- those two things happened years apart. Yeah. But I, I, I wanted to write it down so I didn't forget it because it was it was important to me. Absolutely. Um, so let's go back to Walthamstow. Yeah. Um, you went to sort of a normal... Was it a comp it was, school? Yeah, it was a comprehensive. I'm actually the... Um, I'm one of the governors there now. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. So I go back there quite often. Um, I do, like, public speaking training with the kids and, like, career advice and stuff. Uh, I'm I, sure you're really inspirational. You know, I... I I honestly think that of of all the things that I have done, the the relationship I have with with my old school is the thing that just brings me the most joy. Like, I go in there and I'm looking at these kids who just have a completely different start in life to mm. most of the people I went to university with, and certainly the people you work with. I'm imagining. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. And being able to just tell them that to work hard and that it, that you you know if if you keep your head down, good things will come. And show them that that actually is true. It's not just something that um, they're told by their parents. That they can see it in action. It's almost like I'm going back in and saying, actually, don't be scared of going out there because there's some wonderful things. So you've, you've got to push yourself. But did but I got the vibe from the book that you didn't really enjoy school. It's quite interesting that you go back there now. And I, yeah. you know, I get the idea that you enjoyed learning, but day-to-day school yeah. wasn't great for you. No, uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, school was a complicated time because uh, I was, uh, I, I always sounded like, like this, uh, whereas most people had would use slang and had kind of East London accents. But was that because of your mum and dad wanted you to have a really nice English accent? Well, no, actually, my mum sounds like this too. So right. she, when they came to the country, my mum... How long moved... before you were born did they come here? Um, my mum came here when she was six years old. Oh, right, so, okay. And so, so, she... so she was, you know, almost second generation on that side. And my dad came here when he was 24. Right. And my dad was 26 when I was born and mm-hmm. my mum was 24. So my mum, when they came to the country, they moved to just a very white part of the country. And so she picked up that accent. And so I'm the eldest and, and I sound just like my mum. Yeah. When I was a kid, people used to hear her, like at primary school, and kids used to be like, oh my God, she sounds whiter than you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so at school it was hard because I sounded like this, you know, I wanted, I was a school librarian, which sounds really sad, doesn't it? But I actually think, you know, good for all the school librarians out oh, there. Oh, absolutely. Um, also, I was, I was a member of Reptile Club and so it didn't get me any friends, <laughs> but I bloody loved going to Reptile Club. I really wanted a reptile and mum said, mum was like, 
you are absolutely not having one of those things in my house. <laughs> so as a compromise, I went to Reptile, Reptile Club. Club. And, I mean, it was full of, like, odd people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I bloody loved it. And I yeah. didn't really care that people took the piss because I thought, well, listen, I'm holding a gecko and you're not, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. I mean, my, what school wasn't all bad. There was a lot of bullying, so there was mm. relentless bullying. I was an easy target and... I also wasn't sometimes at least afraid of standing up for myself. Mm. And so it was kind of a slightly lethal combination. But first of all, I don't blame the school for that. I mean, I don't even really blame the kids because oh, no. every we're all kids. Um, we're all kids and we're all, you know, you never know what's going on at home and you know, different people are having different experiences. I think that now about I, I carried so much anger for these girls that were horrible to me at school for such a long time. And it was only sort of probably in the last decade that I've gone oh, wait a minute, I don't think they were having the best time at home. And my mum and dad were both around and they both cared for me and I got to go to dancing club after school and things like that. And, you know, it's only with time that you sort of go, oh... People yeah, have stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely, and it's best not to, to hold on to all that stuff. So yeah. do you think they, with the bullying, do you think they knew that you were gay? Do you think they'd worked yeah. out that... Yeah, I think there was definitely... I mean, there's one incident where I talk about in A Dutiful Boy where mm. I, I talk about this guy in maths class basically calling me out and saying, do you talk like that because you're a batty man? And uh, yeah, I, th I think about I think about that young Mossin having to deal with all of that. Yeah. And, and, the, and when I say I think about the young Mossin, I really, what I really mean is all the young kids today that have to, to deal with that sort of embarrassment. And, you it's know, so you, shaming. Yeah. It's so shaming. When you're not ready to, to admit something to yourself... And having somebody flaunt it in front of you in a way that just makes you feel really naked. And yeah. it was hard. But the great thing about being relentlessly bullied at school is that it makes you, or at least for me, has made me uh, a massive anti-bully. And that's not just yeah. amongst kids, because actually bullying happens plenty amongst adults. Absolutely. Um, and so... My radar for it is is pretty strong, and sometimes I can get myself into trouble because I'm not afraid of, of saying when I think someone's being unnecessarily rude to somebody else even. So it's even Absolutely, none of my business, I get involved. So at what point do you think you realised? Was there a moment when the penny dropped for you? Was there a moment when you sort of realised, oh, I think I'm, I think I'm attracted to boys? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I guess we could all look back at our childhoods and think, oh, maybe it was that moment, maybe mm -hmm. it was that moment. You know, it's the same way that straight people never have to realise that they're straight. It just kind of, you, you grow up, you start to have these feelings and eventually, well, most people act upon them. Mm. Um, and for me, it was, I started having these feelings and I wasn't going to act upon them. Um, but it was just a case of getting to the point where I could admit it, admit it to myself. And so for me, that was thanks to TV. And in particular, it was uh, Queer as Folk, which for, must be the same for so many I mean, people. so many people of our generation, absolutely. Yeah. So actually what happened was... I was watching The Big Breakfast um, and they used to have this segment where they would get people to send in pictures of facial hair, like really big, strong facial <laughs> hair. And then they would go like, you beauty, you beauty. Oh, yeah, at, I at remember the TV. that. And to any listeners um, from overseas, that that is British TV in an art show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's exactly this thing it. that I think like a lot of British people could just get behind. Oh, absolutely. yeah, facial hair Johnny Vaughan, yeah, totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would like, you know, get up in the morning, get ready for school and watch it. And then one day they were talking with an actor called Charlie Hunnam, who's now quite a famous Hollywood actor, also one of the most attractive men of all time. <laughs> um, and at the time he was like, 
probably a few years older than me. He was a late teenager and he was blonde and had this beauty spot and was just my then vision of what was perfect. But I saw him on TV and then it cut to this image. It was a, I'm sorry, it was a video of him basically about to have sex with somebody else. And then they stopped and then Johnny Vaughan, you know, make, makes his jokes and, yeah. and says, oh, it's going to be on Channel 4 soon. And so then I ended up doing whatever I could to to watch the show. And it was on at like 10 or 10.30. And I remember my parents were getting ready for bed and I was doing everything to like yawn and usher them upstairs quickly because there was one TV in the house um, downstairs. Oh, I had a very similar moment with, I don't know what series of Ally McBeal, but it was when Portia de Rossi was in it and she had a, she had a fling with Lucy Liu and I basically watched it with the sound off. I was so terrified. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They could have been talking about anything, but I just knew <laughs> they were matter, about to kiss. Yeah. <laughs> I knew they were about to kiss and I was just like, this is so huge. And there was a girl in my year at school who, I mean, years later we ran into each other in a pub and we were like, oh, we obviously both knew that we were gay, but we never said it. Yeah. And I distinctly remember going into school and seeing her and her being like, did you see Alan McBeal last night? <laughs> and they being like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not and bad. that was it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just that, that desire to just see something and go, oh, okay, there's, there's people like me. Yeah. And there's... Well, yeah, so I guess my experience was very similar to that because I um, watched Queer as Folk and very early in the opening, it's one of the opening scenes, it's Charlie Hunnam having, having sex with the older guy. And I was like a boiling kettle. I was yeah. just like sizzling and was watching this thing you know these guys making out and and you know everything that i had been taught was that this was completely wrong mm -hmm. and sinful and i was just utterly captivated um and then my mum was outside the door terrifying yeah absolutely and, terrifying but i'd actually been prepared for somebody to come down the stairs but i didn't hear her but luckily i i kind of figured it out so that if i did hear somebody i'd press this last channel button and it was 10 channels away from channel 4 so so she comes in and basically says, you know, go to bed, but doesn't, you know, say that she's seen me watching it or anything and then ends up pressing the last channel button and it goes back to channel four, which makes me just freeze oh. with fear. But luckily they aren't having sex anymore. They're running down some sort of hospital corridor. Um, Looks like some medical drama. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Gays in hospitals. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, and she just turns off the TV and goes up to bed and doesn't say anything. And it's kind of unclear whether she whether she knew but now I know that she actually hadn't right. seen anything but I then go up to bed uh, to a bedroom that I shared with my brother and I was just sat there thinking I've got I've got to I've got to say this out loud to myself and so I just kind of whispered I'm gay to myself yeah um and so I guess that's that's the moment when I came out to myself but yeah I, I don't I think I knew way before then yeah and you speak in the book, I mean, it's so interesting about... I didn't realise that as a Muslim boy you read the whole of the Quran. Yeah. And then... But you don't really understand it because you're... Yes, it's this, it's this bizarre thing that... Um, so every Muslim has to read the Quran in mm -hmm. its original ancient Arabic. Yeah. Which, that, that's not bizarre at all. I think that's... I don't see the problem yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you learn this ancient language in order to read it, but you have absolutely no idea what it's saying. Yeah, that's a bit like yeah, a so It would be like being able to read English, but have no idea what the words mean. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what a lot of young Muslims do after school, is they go to Quran classes mm -hmm. where they're taught how to, how to read this ancient language. And at what point was it that you went, because you talk in the book about going on a pilgrimage to Syria. Yeah. That was before you went to Oxford, wasn't it? It was in your last sort of stages of school. So, actually, Syria's... Um, 
I, I go three times in the space of about six years. So I, yeah. I went once when I was about 15. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the first time I go, I go on pilgrimage because my family are Shia Muslims, mm. which is a particular branch of Islam. So I go to this holy site for Shia Muslims. And my parents have told me that whatever I ask for will be granted, you know, whatever I ask for from God. So I sit down in this kind of beautiful big mosque with this great big gold dome and I just ask to be cured. I say, I just take it away. I don't, I don't, I don't want to have these feelings. And, and then I kind of play this waiting game where I think, okay, hopefully it will happen at some yeah. point. So the second time I went uh, to Syria was just after I got into Oxford mm -hmm. and my, my parents kind of want to thank God for the fact that I've done so well at school so I, I go back and, and again um, by this point I can see that my parents are really proud of me and I'm really struggling with that pride in the same way that I think a lot of young LGBT people do they, absolutely um, it's, it's kind of catch-22 because you work really hard so that you can be the best you can be but then your parents are really proud of you and you're ashamed of that pride because you feel like a liar yeah um, so again I asked um, God to cure me um, I, uh, I I just said take it away I don't want this. I don't want... You made that sort of... And I think... I mean, I've done it, I know. I did it sort of growing up. We sort of try and make a deal with God. Again. Yeah. If I, if I can have this, can I not be this thing? Or if I give if I give my place up to that... If I sacrifice that, this, can I Can please... I be straight? Yeah, so I kind of said, you know, I don't want this. Take it away so that I can be straight. Um, and, then, and then the final time that I went to Syria is after the end of my first year at university. Mm. And by this point, I was... Um, I guess distraught is the word. I'd realised I, I couldn't couldn't do it anymore because I was praying five times a day and every time I prayed, I would ask for the same thing. I'd say, Look, I, do, I don't want to be gay, I don't want to be gay. Please just take it away, please just take it away. And... Um, Were you... Because, you, you know, you talk in the book about you create this, like, friendship group that sound awesome. But at that point, did you have that sort of support network at all or was it... No, so... Uh, my first year, I didn't tell anybody. No. I was um, still completely in the closet, and I, I just wasn't. I knew I was gay, and I just thought I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do anything about it. I'm gonna marry a woman. I'm gonna, yeah. uh, you know, get a great job after Oxford. I'm gonna have kids, um, but that came with problems, right? Because, and I, and I write about this: is there is no respect in that thinking for the woman, mm -hmm. and. And I'm quite ashamed of that, but I guess I was young and, and ultimately I didn't end up going down that path. But it's this thing where I would have ended up marrying this person who would have become a prop in my own life. Mm. And But I don't I I mean, I don't think you should feel ashamed of that because I think that so many of our like LGBT family would have felt like that as well. When I first moved to London I, I moved here with a guy. Oh right. And I and I and I, I definitely wasn't out, but I definitely knew that I was gay. Yeah. And because I just thought, I, I honestly thought I can't be an actress and be gay. I've got to choose one or the other. And I thought, well, I really like showing off, so I'll just <laughs> lean into that a bit more. But you know, you trick yourself, don't you, sometimes into going, well, it's just the sexual part of your life. It's just, I, I can just ignore that. But yeah, actually, exactly. you know, being a gay person is so much more, more than, than that. More than just sex, yeah. And then, so then when you came back, so then you, you went again to Syria. Yeah, so I went again to Syria and I went to this very same mosque that I had been to twice before. And I kind of sat down and, and tried to will the words of, you know, please cure me. And I just realised that, that I wasn't going to be cured. Mm -hmm. And it just made me... I just sat there and cried. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think about it now and I just think, God, like, uh, and I just knew that I couldn't do it anymore. And so 
I didn't ask for a cure. I just didn't ask for anything. I kind of almost put the phone down with God. Right. Said, right, I'm not doing this anymore. Sure. And then went back to London and then very quickly things began to unfold. So I told the first person that I was gay, one of my closest friends who in the book is called Layla. Yes. Um, and I have to be really careful with not names. Not to use her own name, because, sure. Um, I get asked about characters. Yeah, of course. And I go completely blank because I don't, I don't know I mean, who they're yeah. talking about. Don't worry, I've done that on stage where I've had to change my friends' names and then <laughs> yeah. called them. And I mean, yeah, you can really tie yourself in knots yeah. and you can really upset people by accident. Yeah. Um, so you, And then you went out for a night out in Soho in London. I came back from Syria and it, I was just about to start on my second year. Mm-hmm. And we all, me and a few of my friends went out to celebrate somebody's birthday. And they were all straight. And so we went to this straight club and then they said um, that they weren't ready to go home. And because I was from London, did I know anywhere? And I'd done a bit of kind of surreptitious, you know, wandering around Soho by myself. We've all done it. Yeah, yeah and you see them even today and you're like, I you just want to give them a hug. Oh, like, I've been there. Absolutely, yeah. totally. Yeah. I remember seeing girls holding hands with each other and being like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing this literally in public. <laughs> this <Yeah>. is mind-blowing. <laughs> Scandalous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I kind of had an idea of somewhere that I could take my friends. Uh, and so I kind of said, oh, I, I know a place. And it was Shadow Lounge, which yes. th- the great thing about Shadow Lounge, I think it's closed now. Yeah, I it? think oh, it I'm is. I'm so old showing my age and I don't even know if it's open. But um, it didn't have any big like pride flags or anything. So, you know, taking them to GAY was not really an no. option. But Shadow Lounge. And so we kind of get to the door and the doorman says, oh, you know, this is a gay club. And, and before I can say anything, one of my friends is like, so what? So we wander inside. And... The reason I did that was because I kind of just needed to know. Like I, I did know, but I needed to go inside and just double check. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as I got in there, I just knew. Like I was yeah. like looking at all these guys and. But also, and I've mentioned this in in other episodes, that moment of relief when you realise how many other gay people there are. Oh yeah. Because I knew there was a fair few, but when. Um, do you remember when GAY was still at the... Near Tottenham where, Court Road. Yeah, where Tottenham Court Road yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. But I went there with sort of my first... A girl that I was dating, one of the first ever girls I went on a date with, called Brie. She was, and she was a little bit older and she was very much out and I was sort of like, oh, my God. And she had loads of gay friends and we all went out <laughs> to GAY. And I remember going up to the top, there was like a balcony where you could look down and see everyone dancing. I remember looking down and just thinking, oh, these people are like me. Mm. I feel so less alone. I feel so less yeah. alone, even though none of them were my friends and I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of their names. But, yeah, going and checking, I totally understand that. Yeah, I, so I went inside. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the feeling of loneliness for me didn't go away for quite a while, actually, because I, because uh, Oxford's a really small city. Yeah. And even, I mean, 15 years ago, it was, it was really different to today. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't that much of a thriving LGBT scene. Um, so anyway, so I was in Shadow Lounge and, and that's when I realised. But So we all go back to my friend's house afterwards mm-hmm. and I just couldn't sleep because I was just overwhelmed with just thinking about all these hot guys, to be honest. Yeah, but then um, also what comes with all of that, which yeah. is, oh, oh, I was right. Yeah, exactly. Oh no, now I've got to deal with this. Exactly. Um, and then that same night, my uh, I, I went into this the, the bathroom and just... I was just I was really upset and I thought my friends were asleep and then more one of my closest friend Layla um Layla um ended up following me in because uh, she could see how upset I was and and then I sat there for, for three hours and it took me three hours to 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 actually say I I'm gay um 
And so the sun was shining by the time we went to bed. And then you go back to Oxford and, I mean, it's quite up and down with your education for a little while, isn't uh, it? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was definitely... There was a, a point where I was going to be kicked out yep. uh, because I just wasn't doing anything. But, I mean, how did you... I mean, I know we've already spoke about you going to Oxford. Like, so, uh, so one of my really good mates, fellow comic Ivo Graham, went to Oxford and he took me there one day to have mm. a look around. I mean, I obviously didn't get the grades to get in. But I, was, I just remember thinking I would have been so... just been so intimidated just by the buildings. Yeah, you know, the thing was, I had gone to a school where... Basically, every time I spoke, I got myself into trouble. And you know, my opinions, I kept them to myself. I kept myself to myself. And I'm quite, I'm actually an extrovert. And I didn't realise that until, until I got to university. Because suddenly, I was in this place, albeit you know, it looks like a castle. Yeah. And, and literally Harry Potter's film. Yeah, I mean, there. literally, but, yeah, it's um, literally Hogwarts. For yeah, those of li- you that don't know what it looks like, it, it's actually Hogwarts. It is actually Hogwarts, exactly. Yeah, the Great um, Hall is one of the... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but I was just surrounded by all these people that were just interested in me and wanted to know what I thought about things and wanted to invite me to, to go and hang out with them and weren't going to punch me if I disagreed with something they said. Um, which is not everybody at my old school, I should no. say. Not no, no. Any, everybody at all. But um, And so I was just too busy basically pulling all the bits of me out yeah. that had not developed while I was a teenager um, to, to worry too much about the castles and, and the, the intimidating bit. But the actual the books, I just ignored. Because the thing is, studying meant being alone, and being alone meant being alone with my thoughts. Right. Um, and that was a really hard thing to do, so I avoided it. But then once you've got your sort of things back in order, there's a therapist who sounds bloody brilliant who yeah. you talk about in the book <clears throat> who really helped you. And then tell me a little bit about your time in Amsterdam because Alice, my partner, and I went there and it feels like it would be a great place to go and have oh God. a it bit was... of a personal awakening. Yeah, so funnily enough, uh, you mentioned the therapist, I think. For some reason, I had failed to tell her that I was going to be living in Holland for a year, in in my third year. So all my second year, I'm talking about how awful everything is. And then towards the end, I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to Holland next year. And she, and she just turned around and says, how did you not tell me that you're going to the gayest place on the planet for a year? <laughs> um, for me, living in Holland was a, a really formative experience. And I think there's such a power in our community in finding people that you can bond with and that can take you under their wing and and show you the ropes. And I found this wonderful human being called Brandon in the book. Yeah, Brandon in the book. I've read Um, his name here. I was like, Brandon, just in case you're interested, it is Brandon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Brandon, who is this wonderfully flamboyant gay guy who... I became his his little sister. That's yeah. how he would describe me, and and all he'd call me his protege. Yeah. Um, because there was so much that I just didn't know, or didn't I didn't know how to carry myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure how to talk to guys. I, I didn't know what to do when I got into a bar because I just felt like I had to like stand straight and wait for somebody to come and say hello. And um, he just he just knocked all of that out of me and just made me see how easy it was. If I could just let go. Yeah. And that's what I admired about him, is that he was he was gay and, like, funny and charismatic and all the other things that he was, and really clever. He was doing a master's. And the sexuality lived with all of the other things. It yeah. wasn't there as a separate piece of him. So meeting Brandon re- just really transformed things. And so I just went out. I went to Amsterdam. I actually lived about 45 minutes outside of Amsterdam. 
So I took that night train back to, to Leiden, my university <laughs> town, like every Friday, every Saturday night. And I just went on loads of dates. I, um, I made loads of gay friends, loads of straight friends as well, but loads yeah. of gay friends. So by the end of that year... I felt more like a human, like a proper human being. Well, like, yeah, in the, in the book, it feels like that's the moment where you sort of accept yourself. Yeah, it, it was really pivotal. And yeah. I mean, Brandon was, he was such an important part of that. And, yeah. and I think for me, he, he represents something that is so special about our community because we don't, we're not born, the way that I was born into my Pakistani heritage and I was taught about the importance of it and the history of partition and India and those things weren't taught to me as uh, somebody who was from the LGBT community by my parents because they wouldn't have known to teach it to me. And, and if they, and, and you know, the book talks about how even if once they did find out, it wasn't straightforward. Mm -hmm. But Brandon gave me that. He, yeah. he, he passed it down to me. Yeah, it's uh, so interesting you say that because it's exactly what Dustin Lance Black and I talked about. Really? About the fact that you're given all this stuff from your family, but then this, you, you, you create this other family that you learn from Yeah. as well. Um, you sort of touched on there a little bit about your, your family's reaction, because obviously that's mm. a massive part of, of your whole coming out story and sort of the fear around it. <clears throat> you told your mum and dad at, at different times. Yes. Yeah. What happened was I was offered a job with a big law firm in my final year of university. Yeah, now what's it called when they're like a special kind of law firm? A magic circle firm. Right, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're like one of the top ones. That's what exactly. you, that's the dream, right? Yeah, so um, magic circle is the, the best kind of law firms in the country, if not right. the world. Okay, and, wow. Um, so I was offered a job with one of them. And the thing that my parents loved doing was to just think about this future that had presented itself from the moment I got into Oxford. That, and you're a very eligible bachelor. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's the other thing. Um, suddenly I'm, you know, an Oxford lawyer, which comes with... Uh, I kind of describe it in the book as if there were arranged marriage top trumps, then then being an Oxford lawyer would be one of the best cards. Yeah. So I was in this position where my family were thinking, OK, our son's about to graduate. He's got this amazing start. Uh, in life with this brilliant career they were thinking about my future and my wife mm -hmm. if I was going to have one and so they sat down to have this kind of chat with me what I would do once I finished at university and and I told them that I was going to move out now in, in the Pakistani community generally the way it works is you stay at home you get married you have your first child at home and then you move a few minutes down the road yeah. so you're always near your parents mm -hmm. So for me to say that after university I was going to move out, especially when they live in London, was for them a massive slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, and, and I understood that. I understood that they would take it really badly and they would think it was me basically saying, I want to live my own life. And actually that's what I was saying, but not for the reasons that they thought. Yeah. What I didn't envisage was how violently my mum would react to that, especially my mum. My mum and my dad, but my mum didn't speak to me for three days and it wasn't out of anger it was out of disappointment and we all know that's so much worse so much worse it's so like, much i'm not angry i'm, I'm just disappointed yeah yeah oh, the worst the um, worst thing a mum can say yeah exactly um but you know as, as the kind of golden child mm -hmm. i'd never experienced this before and it just felt like i was in this dark shadow and i really just that's when i got really angry at the world because mm -hmm. i was just like well I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Like, if I tell them that I'm gay, it's going to be the worst thing in the world. And if I don't tell them, then they're going to assume that I've kind of left behind my Pakistani identity yeah. and forged a, a new Western one. And I kind of resented 
being put in that position. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I, I really didn't know what to do. And I wasn't planning on telling her, but I went in, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I went into her bedroom to try and talk to her because she hadn't spoken to me for, for so long. And she said something like, not now, or, you know, I, I don't speak to you right now. And I think there was just years and years and years of just despair mm. and it just erupted um and I just cry I just started crying and I know I could just tell that I was about to cry in a way that I just hadn't cried before because mm. I just couldn't control it so I ran back into my room but my mum had already figured out that something was really wrong and I was kind of leaning against the door because I didn't have a lock my bedroom door didn't have a lock so I was leaning against it trying to stop my mum from coming inside. But because I was just uncontrollably crying, I, I couldn't stop the door from opening. Mm. And so she came inside and I just, you know, I think I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it was, uh, you know, the reason, the reason I get upset thinking about it is not because of the fact that it happened to me, but because I just think about all those kids that have to go through that today. Mm. And I just, I hate that for them. You know that we live in this society where we have to be so ashamed mm -hmm. and we're so worried about inflicting violence on our parents that it means that we inflict violence on ourselves instead. Mm. I think it's so important to say that and so important. You know, we live now in this world where a lot of people are saying, oh, it's, it's really easy for gay people now, it's great for mm. people now, or like, you know, especially living in the UK and, you know, once a year, you know, Barclays will have a... A rainbow flag, yeah. you know, and, and you think, and people, but I think it's really important to still say, like, you know, for, for me and for lots of my friends and, you know, for lots of the LGBT community, the, the coming, when you come out and, and if you don't have parents that are already know queer people or already know people mm. within that community, you do feel like you are letting down the people that you love more than anything else. In yeah. The, more yeah. than anyone else in the world. You yeah. feel like you're... The people that have given you every opportunity that has made you be able to have the life that you have. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, I think the way you've put it is right. It's you feel you're letting down the people you love most in the world. But I, I kind of add something to that, which is you feel like you've been given this really horrible power over them because nobody can hurt them the way that you're about to. Mm, yeah, totally. And that is what is awful, mm. is no person can hurt them more than or at least this is how you feel. Yeah. No, no person can do the damage that you're about to do because you have this special place in their heart that nobody else does. Yeah. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, if I had a, if I had a terrible illness, it would be easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I write about is I really did consider saying, telling them that I was, like, ill, that I, I was really sick, and then saying, actually, I'm, I'm not medically ill, but I... I am gay. Um, mm. And then I decided not to do that, which I think was actually the right the approach. The right yeah, 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 yeah. But, but that's the thing, isn't it? You're in such a state of internal turmoil that you're clutching at all these things, going, is this the right thing to do? Is that what, what, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And I mean, you, you then, you know, a few years later, your dad found yeah. out. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think he did a thing that I think, that I don't think is particularly unusual, and that he got sort of a holy man 
Mm. Or a, I don't know, whether you call them a witch doctor or, or what, but yeah. to, well, I, I quite describe them as a yeah, witch doctor. Yeah, and and to sort of in in American terms, you'd say maybe pray the gay away, you know. To yeah, sort well, of... so the, I wouldn't call him a holy man because okay. I don't think there was anything holy about what right, he okay, was doing. Um, but that's you know, not, no, no, no. Not, no criticism there. But telling my dad was a, it was an ordeal in and of itself. But afterwards, I was studying because I was doing loads of exams at the time for to become a lawyer and. I came home and there was a guy uh, in the living room who I didn't recognise. And I knew something was up because my parents don't really ask me where I am because they always know I'm in the library. Right, OK. Um, but, they, you know, my brother was messaging me, my mum was messaging me, my dad was messaging me, come home, come home. So eventually I go home and there's a, an old guy there, an old Pakistani guy, and he, uh, he says that he's been asked to come here by my dad and my dad says, look, I want you to talk to this guy. And there's a tradition in my culture, which I think is wonderful, of you respect your elders. I mean, actually, I think that's a tradition in every culture. Yeah. There is a certain level of respect that you pay somebody who's older than you. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to be respectful, but I could just tell straight away that something was wrong. My spidey sense was up, you know, yeah, like, right. just like, what's going on here? And so my dad said he wants to talk to me, and so the guy suggests that we go for a walk. So we, it was quite a sunny spring day. But essentially, he says that he thinks he can cure me. Mm-hmm. And so... What ensues is this kind of low-level battle between me and him of trying to convince my dad about what's the right way forward. Yeah. And, I mean, you've got to read the book, guys, because it's, yeah, it's it's so great. It's so brilliant. Um, So, you know, it was a journey with your mum and dad. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people could really be able to relate to that. You know, I had a journey with my parents and there was no religion thrown in. I think that's an extra layer, isn't it, on top of of all that other stuff. But in the book, you know, your mum and dad just seem so lovely and yeah. so awesome and I mean your brother your younger brother Raza is that yeah. how you say it Raza yeah. when you tell him and he says well yeah I know that's why I wear rainbow laces yeah yeah oh my god I, that, I just thought that was the loveliest it did the simplest thing just yeah. such a simple kind lovely thing and before we go, there's just such a lovely moment in the book where you talk about taking your partner Matthew home for the first time yeah and you know the fact that they your parents have never met anyone that you've dated and that this mm. is looking like it's going to become a really serious relationship we're getting married in four weeks oh my god that's yeah. so wonderful congratulations that means by the time this goes out you'll be a married man how yeah. exciting um that's so wonderful and there's a, a i mean yeah the, the can you tell the story about how people say they like their tea because uh, sure. i just thought this oh, is such god. a sweet way of yeah. your parents sort of making matthew part of the family yeah so course. <laughs> I so embarrassing. I can't believe I wrote about that. But um, I think it's lovely. Yeah. I don't think that's embarrassing. That was something that I really took from it. So basically, my mum is really fair-skinned mm-hmm. Pakistani. Some people mistake her for being Italian. Right. And my dad is is fairly dark-skinned. And as a result, me and my two brothers are completely different shades. So, so between the five of us, we're on this spectrum of caramel if you will sure. <laughs> um, and so when we have guests at the house the thing that my parents love to do especially when it's a whole family thing is they ask guests how they like their tea and they say point at which one of us is best suited to the colour of the tea that you want because <laughs> um, I'm kind of in the middle I, I'm the one who gets pointed at the most um, but yeah so so we're sitting down and we're in this living room that has been my you know, so much of my childhood in yeah. a way and suddenly it's this it feels like this alien place this completely different dynamic i've never felt so nervous in my house or my home 
and my parents are on one side of the room and my, I'm sitting next to Massey on the other. You know, you know your parents. You can tell when they're uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. They, they, they're kind of forcing these smiles that in their head they're like, make sure you're smiling, make sure you're smiling, but they're not smiling. And my mum says... The thing that the thing I love about this is that whether you're in Britain or Ireland or Pakistan, the thing that people say is, who's for some tea? Because, yep. because that relieves tension. So my mum says, do you want some tea? And I knew she was going to do it. And, I, and Matthew says, yes, please. And she says, OK, how would you like your tea? And, and I go, mum, don't, 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 don't. And, she says, and then Matthew kind of puts his hand on my arm and says, just let her, let her say it. And I'm like, why is, he, why is he doing that? And she says, Matthew, how would you like your tea? And she kind of points at points at me and puts it herself and, and my dad and Matthew just picks up his his hand points at his own face and says just not as white as this please and they just burst into laughter and all of the tension seemed to dissolve my mum like completely surprised herself by laughing yeah um and that was the start of it that was the start of it um do you want to mention the... Because I know your mum and dad have, like, a support group. Yeah, so it's... Mention it's, that it's, might be something that... There might be people listening. Yeah. There might be... Yeah, so it's not it's not run by, by me or my family. But, okay. but we we instigated it. Sure. Um, so there is a charity called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, which is not just for, um, for people who are LGBT. It's called the Inclusive Mosque because they aim to be as inclusive as, as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have very kindly helped organise a support group for the families of LGBT Muslims. So if you're an LGBT Muslim, you can go along, or if you're a family member, you can go along. It's a chance to talk about your experiences, hear about the experiences of others, and usually we have a Muslim scholar present as well, so that if people have questions about their faith or the Quran and what it says about homosexuality, they can ask him. So, so, So there's someone there as well. Oh, that's great. And that's called the Inclusive Mosque. Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Okay, yeah. great. The final question I would love to ask you, thank you so much for sharing your story with me, is um, if you could, if I could give you a little old-fashioned telephone yeah. and I could say that you can pick up the phone and um, call little Mossin, I don't know, say you're maybe 12 yeah. or something like that, and you could give him a little bit of advice, what would you say? So I I always find this question interesting because I guess it assumes that by giving the advice, things might go differently. Yeah. And I guess maybe I'm in a fortunate position to be able to say, actually, I don't think I would want anything to have gone differently. I think that the way that things happened, happened. And I learned from all of them. And my parents learned from all of them and my brothers did. And um but I guess another way of putting it is what would I say to another young Muslim? Absolutely. Um, or, or to a young person who's LGBT and struggling with their identity. And the, the first is social media has its place. And I can't tell you to ignore Instagram because nobody will listen. But don't just follow really, really hot, attractive people with, you know, six packs or great breasts <laughs> um, because it will just make you feel worse about yourself. And if you are a queer person of colour and you are going to just follow hot people, then follow some hot people that are also brown and black because it will help. The next piece of advice is read. Uh, I say this because I didn't read and I think I was poorer for it. I found somewhat of a space in TV, in Queer as Folk, but the power of words and the power of stories when they're written down is such that it can reach inside you 
in a way that TV seldom can. TV takes you on a journey. A book makes you feel like your journey is being reflected onto yeah. you. So I would heavily advise finding literature that you see yourself in. And there are so many books out there. It doesn't have to be mine, but there will definitely be something that speaks to, to how you're feeling about whatever it is that you're going through. Yeah, I'll, I'll make some recommendations at the end of this episode. And I'm happy to help you with yeah, that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, third one. This is from Brandon, actually, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Give people the benefit of the doubt. So much of the time, people are going through their own struggles and we can so often think that what's happening is a reflection on us and most of the time it's not. So as much as you can, give people the benefit of the doubt. And then the final piece of advice is find a family. Whether you've got a really supportive family of your own or not, find your own because there is something really special about having people outside of your immediate family who you can turn to, especially when you can't turn to you, the people you're related to. Um, and they are out there. So find them uh, because you're not alone. I mean, a perfect way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I so enjoyed that conversation with Mossin and I really hope you did too. Um, in the episode, Mossin spoke about the fact that he was meant to be getting married in four weeks. Unfortunately, because of the coronavirus outbreak, um, they've had to postpone their wedding. Uh, Alice and I have also had to postpone our wedding, which is, is I'll be honest, pretty gutting. Um, only because we've been planning it a long time, but obviously the absolute right thing to do and in the scale of what lots of people are dealing with, a very minor blip in rescheduling. But um, I'm sure there's lots of you listening that are in similar situations that have had to postpone their weddings or just fun, exciting things that you're looking forward to. But I guess we're in it all together. Now, in the episode, Mossin said he'd suggest some books. And I mean, now's a time more than ever that we can download books and we can start reading stuff. So Mossin's suggestions are Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal by Jeanette Winterson. I've also read that. It's really good. And The End of Eddie by Edward Lewis. Um, if you want some suggestions from me, um, I would definitely suggest Mossin's book. It's called A Dutiful Boy. It's released on the 20th of August. I'm going to uh, tweet out a link for you to pre-order if you want to. Please get behind the book. It's so brilliant and I really hope it gets the audience it deserves. Uh, I would also suggest Sarah Waters, well, any of Sarah Waters' books, really, but my favourite is The Paying Guest. Um, I loved the Tales from the City books. There's lots of them. They're really enjoyable. Tignataro, who is an American stand-up comic, uh, I loved her book, her autobiography. And also, if you're looking for something a bit different, you might have read it, but if, if you haven't, um, graphic novels, I've never really been into them, but I love Alison Bechdel, and I especially loved Fun Home, which is a graphic novel and now it's been it's been made into a musical as well. It was on Broadway for a while. It came to London last year and was at the Young Vic and I saw it. I absolutely love it. The music's on Spotify if you want to have a listen. I'm sure it's on lots of other things as well. But there's a, a particular song called Changing My Major to Joan. And I have never, ever seen myself reflected back in musical theatre and uh, I loved, love, love, love that song and I loved the show when I saw it. So maybe have a look at that. Uh, before I go, there's another book that I'd like to recommend. Now, a little while ago when I was doing the intro to this show, I, I read the coming out letter from the teacher. And as I was reading that letter, I got an email in 
to the uh, to the podcast email address from someone who used to be a teacher. I'll read it to you. They've got a book that they asked me to plug, and I think I think it makes perfect sense for me to plug it on this episode after reading that anonymous coming out letter earlier. Here we go. It's from Catherine Lee, and uh, she says. After 20 years as a teacher, I survived Section 28 in its entirety. I left teaching in 2010 after some fairly horrible homophobia from a parent in a school. After I left teaching for higher education, I was determined that I would make a positive difference for LGBT teachers in schools. So I worked with a team of head teachers to set up Courageous Leaders, the UK's only LGBT leadership course for teachers. The website's uh, courageousleaders.org.uk and the Twitter handle is at LGBT educators. She goes on to say, so far we've helped 60 LGBT teachers achieve promotions to head teacher and other senior leadership roles as their LGBT authentic self. We've helped many more to become positive LGBT role models for the young people they teach. A number of teachers wanted to share their stories of being LGBT and they've just published a book. Uh, It's called Courageous in the Classroom, LGBT Teachers Share Their Stories. So have a look at that. It sounds like a really interesting thing to read and something that I'm sure we could all get something out of. And um, a little shout out to Catherine Lee. Thank you for getting in touch. And I mean, congratulations. That sounds like a wonderful thing to put out into the world, as does um, the organisation Courageous Leaders. So that's it for this week. Again, as always, if you want to share your coming out story with me, please do. The email address is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. But that's it from me. Until next week, I hope you're doing well and I'll chat to you then. Bye.